a lot of things have been said about what I stand for, my determination and my work ethics and everything like that, but, you know, we're still one of the smaller teams on the NASCAR circuit, and these guys work really hard and they deserve a lot of the credit. Uh, everything that I stand for, they stand for also, and I wouldn't be here without them. And now a special presentation from Dinner with Racers. Welcome to a very special edition of Dinner with Racers. I'm Ryan Eversley alongside my co-host and partner, Sean Heckman. We just finished 4,000 miles of traveling all across Wisconsin, Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina to bring 12 meals into four episodes of a very important person in NASCAR history that Sean and I have always admired, Alan Kowicki. Now, as Ryan said, this is going to be very different from what you're used to. It's, it's going to be more in-depth conversation about one person. It's going to be spread out over four episodes. Uh, but the reason we wanted to do it this way and the reason why this is going to have so much more depth than we normally do is because uh, being a hero of Ryan and I's, we really couldn't find much information on him. And if we don't have that kind of access, then we figured the fans don't either. So why not sit down with 12 people who knew Alan the best? A couple years ago, we interviewed Jeff Brown and he talked about his history and relationship with Alan. And that kind of sparked some interest that Sean and I had about getting to really know the person that was behind the championship. And so that's really the birth of this happening was from a couple years ago when we went to Avalo, Texas and had dinner at Jeff Brown's house. So we're going to break this up into four episodes. These next two episodes you're going to hear are going to go through the history of Alan's career. The third episode is going to be about the stories that you kind of never heard, but they're fun. And then the uh, fourth episode will, will handle the moment of April 1st, 1993, which this is, of course, coming out 25 years later. First up, we're going to hear from Tom Jensen, who's technically titled the Cultural Affairs Manager at the NASCAR Hall of Fame, but he's more known in the NASCAR community as a longtime writer for Speed, Fox Sports, and many other publications. And he was able to give us some time and a tour of the NASCAR Hall of Fame in Charlotte, North Carolina, and that was really cool. Now take a listen to Tom as he gives you an overview on why Alan is significant to the history of NASCAR. All right, so, um, oh my gosh, you have notes. Yeah, I was Is just that looking notes? at that. I was like, that's, uh, that's, yeah. that's new for us this year. We've had people bring notes, but I think it's because they want to remember exactly. Yeah. You want to do them justice, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, and yeah. There, there's so much to tell about this story. Right. Alan is a fascinating guy. You know, he, he grew up under very difficult circumstances. His mother died when he was in second grade, and he and his brother and his father moved in with his grandmother, and she died when he was in seventh grade and his older brother who had hemophilia died a year later. And his father, Jerry, was a very well-known and w very highly regarded championship engine builder in the USAC circuit. Right. And he didn't want Alan to go racing because he knew how much it took away from family and, and he knew the hardships that went into racing. And as Alan said, he was also scared that, that Alan was gonna get hurt. And he said, the, f the father said, you're all I've got left. But Alan followed his dream and, and started racing short tracks. And, and uh, you know, we forget now because if you if you look at NASCAR, there's people from all over the country now. There's lots of guys, Jimmy Johnson and the Jeff Gordons from California and, you know, the now retired Tony Stewart from Indiana and, and, yeah. and people from all over. But back in those days. Say, yeah, that's, that's all in the last 20 years. Yeah. 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 Right. yeah. It was all Southern. It was right. all Southern. Mm -hmm. And Kowicki came in. He was college educated, which nobody was. Right. 
unless you count the Junior Johnson Shade Tree College as <laughs> an <laughs> academic institution, oh boy. Right. <laughs> which I guess you could. And he was not an especially warm and fuzzy guy. Right. Um, one of the things I found interesting, and, and this is kind of an aside, but I wrote about him extensively when I was at speed.com. Okay. And we did an anniversary piece for him years ago. I interviewed a number of his crewmen. Peter Jellin, who was his transporter driver. We just driver. had dinner with Peter. Last night, yeah. yeah. Peter lives like two minutes from me. Oh, cool. <laughs> and, okay. And we've known yeah. each other for a long time. And sure. Pete, Peter told me every guy on that team that Alan hired had to be a racer That's himself. Right. Yeah. That's right. Had to be somebody who had his own race car and knew what it was like to tow home at 3 in the morning with – you know, maybe enough yeah. gas money to get home. Yeah. He wanted guys who were used to the hard scrabble yeah. existence. They've got that sympathy and that initiative. Yeah. 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 And so that's that's kind of how he, he, he put his crew together. And he came down here in uh, 1985 with, with his loaded up his pickup truck and had one race car on the trailer and his truck caught fire, right. yep. burned to the ground. <laughs> mm -hmm. And he had to borrow another truck to get down here. And you know the championship story and the first win and the polish victory lap everybody knows those stories yep. who's a kolwicki fan but i think one of the most interesting things is his 1986 rookie season right he started out and he had a one race sponsorship deal with quincy's family steakhouses yeah. right the first race is the daytona 500 bobby hillen blows an engine in front of him in practice he crashes has a bunch of guys from other crews come over, help him thrash on his car, get it ready for the one. Oh, even so the, the Northern College boy still got still got some assistance. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so he makes it into the 125s, and it looks like he's all set to race into the, the 500, and he gets passed by two guys who draft by him in the fourth corner of the last lap of uh, his 125. Right. So he's out. Yeah. Right. So first race doesn't make the Daytona 500. So they go on to Richmond. And Quincy's agrees to carry the sponsorship to Richmond, even though Richmond isn't Daytona. They qualify. He's number seven qualifying. Oh, wow. Then with three cars to go in qualifying, it starts raining. And qualifying's rained out. So he doesn't make the field. Right. Because unless everybody gets a qualifying attempt, it's you out. don't get a chance to go. Right. right. So he goes home again. And the next week at Rockingham, they carry the sponsorship. He qualifies 27th, and he finishes 15th, which is pretty darn good for a rookie. Then they go to Talladega, and at, at Talladega, Quincy's brings 150 people. Sure. And they're going to – this is their first big hospitality, yeah. their first big – Ryan, yeah, yeah. you know this activation is big in sponsorship. Absolutely. This is their first big activation, and he doesn't qualify at Talladega. <laughs> But he saves the deal Sunday morning before the race. He goes to where Quincy's is having their hospitality, and he stands in the back of a pickup truck, and he talks to the guys about the race, the 150 Quincy's guests about the race and what to expect and who's good and what to look for. And the Quincy's people are so impressed that they agree to do 15 races with him. And it gives him enough money. Based to, on his sole ability to speak off the back of a pickup truck. Well. Probably saw the initiative too. Yeah. They saw the yeah. initiative and they saw that, you know, he'd go through the struggles, but no matter what, he was willing yeah. 
to work hard and move heaven and earth to, to try to get in the races. Right. And he wound up, and I, I think this is particularly impressive. Two things jump out at me about that 86 rookie season. Three things, actually. Okay, there were 29 races then. He only qualified for 23 of them. But in 18 of those 23, he was a top finishing rookie. He beat out Michael Waltrip for Rookie of the Year. Yeah. And Waltrip had, it's fair to say, a lot better equipment. Right. But one thing that, that, that I found amazing, if you look at the stats, in that rookie season, Allen completed 95% of his laps. And when you think about it with a guy running on a low-budget operation sure, sure. with, I'm sure, not really great motors yeah. and cars that probably didn't have, the, certainly didn't have the handling and the, the aero. The thing that kept getting repeated was the, two the, engines in one car for yeah, most right, of the year. Yeah, yeah, right. so. yeah, yeah. He, he had two... Um, Two engines in one car. They called the car Sirloin. That's right. That's <laughs> and right. it was called Sirloin because it was so tough on so many tracks. <laughs> but that just kind of shows you the the guy he was. Yeah. And, you know, he put together the, this crew. When, when I was talking to, you know, 10 years ago, when I was putting the 15th anniversary piece together for, for with, I was talking to Peter Jellin, and he was telling me when they'd go out west, Allen didn't take a lot of people with him. He'd get pickup guys like from like the Southwest Series and, and what's now the K&N Pro sure. Series West to come change tires for him. And Peter <laughs> Peter said, yeah, we'd give, him a, we'd give him a T-shirt and maybe a sandwich. And that was it because we didn't have any money to pay him. But, right, yeah. but they were all, you know, there, there's that bond yeah. among racers. You want to be part of the deal. Right. You want to be part of the action. Yeah. And um, it was incredible what he was able to do in the early days. Right. That rookie of the year season, we were sitting down with Tom Roberts over in Guntersville, Alabama. Yep. And, Two uh, days ago. Right. Or 20 years ago. Or, we're yeah, not it sure. all blurs yeah. together. Yeah. And uh, he pointed out that when Allen was up against Michael Waltrip for rookie of the year, Daryl Waltrip was actually on the panel. That's right. And he still won the championship. Yeah. You know, so it kind of speaks to the volumes of his character that they're like, we got to give it to this kid. Yeah, well, and, and to finish – as the number one rookie in 18 of the 23 races you appear. That's pretty amazing because, you know, in racing, stuff happens. You lose engines. You get wrecked. You have a bad pit stop that that puts you back. You get lapped early. That that really, I think, helped put him on the map. And, you know, he he gradually started to assemble this band of of people. And you, you move on. You know, in 89, 90, 91, Junior Johnson wanted to hire him. Junior Johnson offered him a million dollars to drive drive for in, him. And, and this is almost 30 years ago yeah, now. Right, right, right. It was, a, right. Right. A lot of it money. was real money then. Yeah, and, and Junior Johnson, for perspective at the time, would be the equivalent of a Joe Gibbs today or, or, a, a, Rick or a Rick Hendrick. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. He, he was absolutely one of, the, one of the elite teams, and he wanted to do his own deal. And... It, you know, Alan was very difficult to work for. Guys that I spoke with who worked for him said particularly when you first started with him, he would be really, really hard on you until he understood that you had the same commitment he did. And then the guys kind of bonded as, as a team. Right. And you know, he started getting better and better in 86 and 87. And in 88, there was the famous race in Phoenix that, that he won. 
Um, Ricky Rudd blew an engine while he was leading, and, and Cole Wickey won. And it, it's funny, this a, a little aside, but everybody talks about it. the racing was so much better then. <laughs> Allen won by 14 seconds. <laughs> right. 14 right. seconds yeah. he won that race by. But he did the famed Polish victory lap. And before he had, months before he had done that, he sat down with Humpy Wheeler, the former general manager and president of Charlotte Motor Speedway, and said, Humpy, I want to do something that people will remember. And they talked about it, and Alan came up with this idea. And, you know, they people make a big deal out about Polish victory lap going the wrong way. Really, you know, the Polish victory lap was kind of a play on words, sure, words right. thing for Polish jokes. Yeah. But really what it was, was he could face the people exactly. in the grandstand. Yeah. He could put his window net down and drive slowly around and see the reaction of the people. The funny thing about it is he was terrified that NASCAR was going to be furious. (laughs) Well, and and for perspective, in 1988, like today, in 2018, Austin Dillon's doing the dabs. Yeah, we're doing dabs and slides Slides. and burnouts, and everyone's going backwards (laughs) after they win a race. But in 1988, you took the checkered flag, and then you just drove to victory lane on a cool-down lap. Yeah. Right, Right. and that was it. That's all anybody did. He was actually afraid they were going to take the win away from him. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he was worried about it. But, it, and, you know, Phoenix was a little hole in the wall track then. They had a media center not much bigger than this conference room. Right. You couldn't get in or out of the track except by a back gate. So sure. after the race, you had to wait for hours, literally two or three hours to get out. Yeah. And so the, the track thoughtfully kept coolers full of beer stocked in the back for the hardworking reporters. <laughs> they get and, nice. They nice. get and it. And you guys can drive. after the race. Yeah. Right. Well, something you, you can't do now, but, but <laughs> you know, that, that far from causing a problem, it made national headlines. Yeah, right? It made right. the evening news. Right, People right. like, look at how cool this is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that really put him on the map. Yeah. And then 1992, the amazing season he had when he won the championship, he was, I believe, 237 points down after the Dover race. He qualified on the pole on Dover and crashed out early. And it looked like... Everything was, everything was done, right. and he met with his crew after the race, and he said, "Guys, I'll make you a deal. Don't quit on me, and I won't quit on you. Let's all stick, w- stick with this together, and we'll see what what we can do." And, you know, the the rest is history. They they went into the final race. They they steadily made up ground, and they went in the final race at Atlanta, maybe the most famous race in NASCAR history. Right. Certainly one of the top five. Yeah. Um, the Hooters 500, last race for Richard Petty, right. first race for Jeff Gordon. Right. Five drivers mathematically alive. And this is pre-chase. Pre-chase. Like, yeah. There's cumulative number of points over 30-some-odd races at that, right. that time of year. And, just, and still five guys just mathematically alive. Right. Yeah. Davey Allison led the points going yeah. into it, and he got wrecked early by Ernie Irvin, and, the, and that took him out of it. And the race came down to Bill Elliott in Junior Johnson's car, who who um, Kowicki could have been driving for. Elliott wins the race, but Kowicki leads one more lap, gets the five bonus points for winning, for leading the most laps, and wins the championship over 29 or 30 races, whatever right. it is back then, by 10 points. Right. Had he not led the most laps, he would not have been champion. It, it was an incredible story. And, you know, along the way, there were, there, there were a lot of great details. They used to... They had two sets of cylinder heads that they used the entire year long, aside from the restrictor plate tracks, which are, are a different animal. For some perspective, what would, like, let's say, Junior Johnson's team have at that time? 
probably different for for 10 different tracks right yeah, right right, yeah. right yeah you know because you'd have a short track set you'd have an intermediate set you might have a different set for bristol than you sure. would for martinsville because sure. they're both half mile tracks but the torque characteristics are different right and, and so on and alan's crew you know they flew commercial they didn't yeah. they the hooters had a private plane but that he would fly on for for things but but they didn't that, yeah, the rest of the guys. Yeah, and yeah. we talked about that with Peter and yeah. and with uh, Paul Andrews. They carried the cylinder heads and the carry-on luggage, right? And put them in the overhead <laughs> racks on the airplanes. Yeah. Now think about how heavy those. Yeah, right, are. right, right. You know, you're carrying a bag with two cylinder yeah. heads. Imagine yeah. going yeah. through the metal detector. Right, right. right. But um, those are the kinds of things that he had to do. Yeah. Now I've seen estimates that his team that year, counting Colwicky. They had 16 full-time paid Gosh. employees. Right. And again, what would you say Junior Johnson or Richard Childers had at the time? A hundred, hundred and fifty. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 16 was counting Kowicki as right. the owner driver right. and his secretary. Of the other 14, four of them became crew chiefs, including right. Tony Gibson, who was the crew chief, the winning Daytona 500 crew chief in 2017 yep. with Kurt Busch. Right. Um, they had a small but fiercely loyal band because they'd all went through yeah. being poor together and yeah. struggling. Yeah. So you're all stuck in the stuff races. together. Yeah. And um, uh, they bonded really well. And, and uh, Kowicki was somebody who had a lot of respect from the fellow racers because they all knew how hard it was. Right. Now, I don't know what the exact numbers are. We're not, we're, truly, we're not privy to right. exact budgets. But I've seen crew guys on his team say the championship year of 1992, he spent between 1.2 and 1.4 million dollars, and wow. Childress and Johnson were spending closer to four or five million. Right. So somewhere between three and four times, what what he budgeted. He doing, but yeah. 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 But he, he got him. Yeah. He he still got it done. Uh, he was the first driver and sole owner to win a championship since Rex White in 1960. The first to win it in the last race since Petty passed Daryl Waltrip in points in 79. <laughs> the first champion with a college degree. And Wait, ever? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Jeez. And, and he was from the North. So yeah. Like, yeah this this guy. Wisconsin guy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He might as well have been from Mars. That's right. 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 But from sort of the, the foundations of modern day NASCAR to then, we're talking all a 25 to 30 year period. And you're saying there was one Northern champion and zero with a college degree. Right. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. It, it was just a different world then. And, you know, to, to look at what he's done, the only owner-driver to be a champion s since then is Tony Stewart in 2011. And it's fair to say Tony was with a powerhouse team. Yeah. And, Much more and, and, a partner and means that, that Alan never right. had. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they were a real major league team. This, yeah. Right. This was... Uh, for Kowicki to do what he did is it's just flat amazing. There's there's no other way to put it. So that was Tom Jensen, who, as we said, is a longtime motorsport rider, but he's currently the culture affairs manager at NASCAR in the Hall of Fame. And we'll actually talk about the Hall of Fame uh, in episode four. Uh, but we're going to move on to somebody who you've heard of before, if you're a fan of our podcast, Mr. Jeff Brown. Now, Jeff is a current engineer in sports car racing, but he's kind of done everything, IndyCar, prototypes, and stock cars. And actually, uh, it all began with none other than Alan Kowicki 
back in Wisconsin where they both grew up. Uh, Jeff was part of Transact, which was sort of the, the first team that Alan drove for back in the 70s and 80s in uh, Wisconsin. And uh, we actually met with Jeff several years ago to, to first talk about Alan as part of Jeff's own episode. Uh, and so we re-met with him this year at the Holiday Inn. Uh, where he had just finished engineering the 12 Hours of Sebring, where Ryan drove as well. Here's Jeff Brown. So you're kind of our last stop in this whole adventure. We're, we're ending here with Sebring. We, uh, it's been a hell of a journey so far. We, we went to your hometown of Wisconsin, yep. where we learned that your way of speaking um, is actually just the area. Like everybody yeah. there sounds like Jeff Brown. It was pretty <laughs> yeah, astounding. That's true. Yeah. True. Okay. Um, and then we went to Alabama. We went to we went to Mooresville. So it's been it's definitely been an adventure. Awesome. And so your name has come up on a couple of occasions. Um, but as I see the timeline in Alan's career, you basically there was a time where you know he he started karting at a at a young age um, with his with his buddy Doug, um, and then he started transitioning to, to sort of the ASA and the, and the short track ranks. Yep. Um, and I get the impression it was at that point that you sort of entered the picture. Actually, before that. Okay. Even during the karting stuff. Okay. Uh, we were, we, I was driving as a <laughs> eight-year-old, maybe an eight, nine-year-old okay. at a track in near our home at Dallasman, Wisconsin. Yeah, were you guys roughly the same age? Alan was, I think, three years older than me. Okay. okay. At least three, possibly four. I'm trying to think. I was born in 57. I think he was 54, maybe. I can't remember. Yeah, but it's about right. So yeah. three years or so. Yeah. And uh, so we were racing carts at Dousman. I was in the what was called the rookie class, which was for like 8 to 12-year-olds. And then there was juniors from 12 to 16-year-olds. Okay. And Alan was in the junior class. So he, okay. was so he was like the next age group. Right. Up, right. But we knew him. You know, it was you go yeah, out yeah. to the local cart race, and there's 100 people. And after two weeks, you know everybody. And yeah. so yeah. we got to know him. And... At one stage, and I don't remember exactly how this worked, but he, Alan would, his, Alan's dad wasn't so keen on him racing. Right. Because Alan's dad built motors for, yeah. like, Norm Nelson and all that, and he knew racing yeah. and, and the toughness of the business and right. the life and all that. And, and he was busy. And he was busy. He didn't yeah. really have time to work with Alan. And so, so Alan started coming to the kart track with whoever would yeah. put his cart in the back of their van and right. haul it out there with them. Well, we ended up being that person okay. <coughs> for a while. And I remember one time going to the IKF Grand Nationals in Camden, Ohio. And we hauled Alan's cart out there in our van, my dad. It was my dad, my mom, my brother, and me. That was okay. our team. And we threw Alan's cart in there. And Alan got there somehow. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> he probably hitchhiked as a 14-year-old. Right. And we got there, and Alan started, you know, he, here's your cart, and here's your starter. Yeah. And in those days, you started it with a uh, a little cart that had a battery and a motor on it yeah. and a V-belt that right. went to the to the uh, <laughs> crankshaft. Okay. And it was hard to start yourself, yeah. so he needed somebody. So my brother, who's three years younger than me, so at the time, he was about seven. So he's got like a seven-year-old hole in, hole in this uh, little <laughs> starter motor. Right. So he's <laughs> so so already put in the work. Yeah, right. That's yeah. awesome. So it turned out my Some brother ended change. up, my brother Cole ended up being Alan's crew chief for the IKF Grand National. Seven-year-old Seven Cole, Cole yeah. Brown. And, okay. and, and Alan was like, yeah, this is awesome. He never right. had that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Work it. Yeah, yeah. And that was in the days when there were no fuel rules. Or child labor laws. Or child, <laughs> yeah. luckily. OSHA didn't exist. Right. <laughs> 
So fuel, a, after every heat race, you had to take your carburetor part, change all the diaphragms and all the m rubber parts because we were running nitromethane, nitrobenzene, hydrogen peroxide, acetone, all mixed in the fuel. And Sounds healthy. ate that stuff. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> Making bombs, basically. Yeah. Right. But <laughs> For they, children. At the IKF Grand Nationals, they paint your carburetor so you so can't, you can't take it, it apart. Uh, okay, sure. So yeah. what you had to do is come back quickly put a hose in a tank of gas, start the engine, and flush it with regular gas and oil. Okay. Alan didn't know that, so he came back, and he started taking this carburetor apart, and my brother's like, whoa, 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 you broke the seals, broke the seals. Yeah. So then he had to take the carburetor back, get it resealed. Right. And, I mean, it was, uh, Alan didn't know a whole lot, but he was unbelievably dedicated, even yeah. at that age. Right. Yeah. And so that's how I started. So um, Alan wanted to go car racing and around wisconsin it was dirt late models yeah, basically okay. um and there was two different classes there were like the cool late models okay. the, the, the like the modern ones and then there was like a sportsman class okay. which was not street stocks but kind of sort of like class for older yeah, right. cars right so alan wanted to get that going and we had stayed in touch or maybe we were just a natural progression rate from cars so this is what age would you say i would say he was probably 18 i can't okay. remember whenever you could race i don't know if that was 16 then or right. 18 sure then. but but late teenager yeah, yeah late teenager and i did not have my driver's license so okay. i was under 16 yes yeah, so i would put him 18 sure uh, maybe 15 so 17 18 yeah. sure and um so we needed alan's like we, we should go car racing and i was like yeah we should but with what money yeah right and alan had a little bit of money and mm -hmm. his and his dad he said well maybe my dad will help me and his dad no, was no not absolutely not yeah, at yeah, all yeah, yeah. you know maybe i can get an engine for my dad no, no. maybe i can get <laughs> something from it no so <clears throat> my dad had been buying his i thought back about this, this is weird but back then it was a common thing and for a lot of people to buy a new car every year mm -hmm. kind of thing trade it in and yeah, so my dad would do that at the Chevy dealer in town. And he called the Chevy dealer and said, hey, you want to sponsor this car? And he said, sure, we'll sponsor the car. How much? And my dad said, uh, 500 bucks? Yeah, 500 bucks. So this local nice. Chevy dealer okay. gave us 500 bucks. Just Alan like it is today. So yeah. Well, I was going to say, just to interrupt real quick, kids always ask for way more than you need. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> he says right away in the first one, you messed up. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. So we um, went to a junkyard, found a 60 seven or 68 Camaro junked brought it back Alan and I we welded a uh, roll cage in it to the whatever rules we got one of those manuals for engines I can't remember it was like high performance Chevy engine building for a small block Chevy a book <laughs> and we opened the book to page one and we bought the parts you were supposed to buy the rev kit for the cams and the bearings and everything and we took uh, engine apart and we put it back together with what parts we could afford built this car and went to the dirt tracks and, and again you're like 15 15 yeah I and he's drive. roughly 17 or 18 yep yep what 15 year old kids do you know that do that now yeah and okay. now we have YouTube videos. Yeah, isn't like, that yeah. too bad? Like, yeah. They don't even and we have YouTube places. videos. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, wait, there's a lot more right. resources yeah. now. So. <laughs> now there's an app? Yeah. Right. <laughs> there's an app <laughs> for that. And you go to Amazon, you're like, I need all this stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah that's that's a sad commentary, mm -hmm. really. Yeah. That, I mean, we didn't think it was weird. We thought that was, uh, if you want to race, how, nobody's, we asked, nobody would give us an engine. <laughs> right. So, so we built one. I remember 
Leo's Speedway in Cedarburg, I think, might have been the first time we won. It was probably the third or fourth race, okay. and he won the dirt race there. Yeah. It was awesome. And Hales Corners yeah. and Cedarburg, and I can't remember else. But we, you could race four days a week then. They'd have a Wednesday show yeah. and then a Friday, Saturday, Sunday show at four different tracks. Right. And so and you didn't have to do like a complete rebuild or any of that. No, so because you could kind of go, just pack it up, run to the next one. Yeah, week. run the same tires for yeah. five weekends or mm-hmm. whatever. And right. It's pretty affordable. So right. <coughs> we did that for a while. Were people coming to those races, like fans, every night? Yeah, I mean, those were, yeah. that was in the heyday of stock car racing, yeah. where there was huge rivalries and like fist yeah. fights. Right. And Four nights a week, you could go yeah, and exactly. see fans and everything. That oh, yeah, no, they cool. were, they were, because yeah. it was the local towns. Right, and right, so you'd right. get like... Hales Corners in Cedarburg. And well, and we heard some Hales Corners stories. Sound like it was kind of a fun place to be. That You'd go to what's called like, like the Oak, Oak Tree, Tree or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. yeah so, so that's how I got to know Alan. And then it went later. It went into the ASA and the more serious right stuff. Well, speaking of serious, so you started back in karting with him. Um, there, uh, a lot of people said that we've met with so far that that actually in the early days. Yes, he was serious, but the sort of the intense Alan Cole wiki that kind of came out in the later ASA and NASCAR days wasn't actually the same in the karting in, in early days. It, it wasn't really until like the switch came on later in life that he, that he became the guy that became a little bit more difficult. Yeah, I would agree. Um, yeah. I think it's kind of that, I think a lot of guys, I mean, I see it today with, with kids. I mean, Ryan's no different. You. Yeah. You're having fun doing it. You kind of grew up into the racing world. Colin, my son, is the yep. same kind of way. Ryan, you, you grow up in that racing world, and it's fun, and it's what you do. And you really don't, You at a young age, you think that's what everybody does. You right. don't understand that you're special in that you get that opportunity. Yeah, right. Alan was kind of that way. He was having fun. This is really cool. And then at one point, it, you realize, oh, people do have to have a job. Yeah. They do have to make money and support themselves. And, oh... I might be able to do that by being a race car driver or a race car team owner or a race car engineer or whatever. And that's when it switches. Right. And then you go, now it becomes serious because you really, really, really want to do that. Yeah. And it's maybe not so much because it's your only alternative, but because you love it so much and they'll pay you to do it and you could do this your whole life. It's awesome. Right. So I, that did happen to Alan. I, I don't know that exact time, but for sure. Sure, but you saw, I saw him, like I the saw kid the you knew in carts, too. Oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, when he, was in, when he was in college at uh, UWM, right. I was, he was finishing up when I was starting at Milwaukee School of Engineering. So yeah. we were, you know, I was like a freshman. He was a junior or whatever. Right, right, right. And those schools were literally <coughs> 20 blocks apart. Right. And so... We would still have these conversations right. about theoretical stuff, you know. It'd be like, so in other words, you'd learn, learn a new concept, right? And you'd immediately figure like, oh, this could apply to what we're doing right now right. at well, Slinger. Yeah, but it was yeah. usually always racing related, right? And then what we were learning in school to help us understand everything it. was channeled towards yeah. this one thing. Yep. Yeah. And there were like, like never-ending phone call. <laughs> that lasted sure. a year on the yeah, same yeah. subject. Yeah. And it was never any, remember that time we were talking? No, it was just, Alan, that banjo front steer car cannot be as good as the Laughlin rear steer car because when you load the car, the rear steer car is going to tow out and the front steer car is going to tow in. 
and I think we want it to tow out or an LMB. No, 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 no. Like at Bristol, it loads more vertically, and it's not going to change the tow, and you can run a bigger oil pan or whatever. And so we'd, and that conversation would just continue on, and then we'd go, okay, no, I think you're on click. And then three days later, no, no, you might be right, actually. You know, the phone <laughs> would just ring, and we'd just start where we left there you off. Go. Yeah, right. exactly, yeah. exactly. We did that a lot. At, at what point were you getting paid to work with Alan on his stock car racing stuff? So I graduated from college, Milwaukee School of Engineering. I didn't go straight into racing. I went to Texas. That's how I ended up in Texas right. to work for an oil field services company in running their data acquisition systems. It was kind of a plan to data was just coming in race cars. I was sure. like, let's learn. And if this. you listen to episode seven, you yeah. can learn more about <laughs> okay, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we won't go over that. But, but yeah, yeah. So but I went you went there to, to learn basically the, data. the beginning of computer right. stuff. Right. So. Alan was looking to go asphalt racing at, in ASA, which is like the K&N probably of the, right. of the world now. My dad started a team with Alan called Transact. Yeah, right. Inc. Yep. Alan was a driver. My dad had some business associates. My dad owned, owned an insurance agency, and he had some business people, and they put some money in with Alan and some sponsors, small sponsors, sure. to start this ASA team. I was in Texas. I had done my thing there, learned what I could learn, I thought, and six months into that, they both called and said, uh, would you like to come and work on the ASA team? Okay. So I uh, was like, yeah, racing. Yeah. And right. Now, was that because they needed the extra help or they needed somebody in the middle? Um, Alan, Alan and I had worked together enough where he right. knew that I could help him. Right. And my dad was still running his insurance agency, so he wasn't going to deal with the other well, that, stuff. Well, that's what I'm saying. So it's kind of Was middle. it that you could kind of speak cold wiki, so to speak, that your dad's probably yeah. getting hit up by this punk who keeps just burning I think there down, was some of down. that. Yeah. 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 And what we've learned is that he didn't just let anybody in. You had to prove yourself. And once you were in, you were in, which you had already done. Yeah. So and so it was easy to go there. Right. And so, so I came there and, you know, you said get paid. I think... I think I don't know that I actually got paid to do that. That's where yeah, I was that's going. We kind of figured, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I did. I think my dad said, "Well, you know, here, do this." And the oil field business, I had saved up some money that paid right. really, really good. And as a young kid, I didn't need that much. Diane and I were married, but it was just us, and right. and they got a hospitality uh, logistics reservation making person with Diane in the whole package. Yeah. So her and so I did much it. free stuff. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and. Um, it was basically Alan and me and a guy by the name of Arnie Hussman, who were the three full-time guys. We were the right. only guys that worked on the car. Yeah. And then we had fly-in guys or drive-over drive sure. guys, <laughs> right, 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 <laughs> whatever right, it was. Right. And those are consistent guys, but yeah. they had real jobs, and they would come in on the weekends. And so we started that ASA, or started running that ASA team and did pretty well. I yeah. mean, and by that time, the hyper-focused, laser-focused, Alan was there. Right. right. I mean, that was... And and for those who are maybe less familiar with what ASA, modern-day ASA would be like K&N West or K&N East in terms of the exactly. scale of it things. It would right. be so the step just before you went NASCAR truck Like at a national level, or yeah. Or something. Yeah, right. exactly. So then in the South, there was a series called All Pro, yep. right. which was basically the Southern version of ASA. Right. At one time, one year, Alan and I did 78 races. <coughs> we had a box van uh -huh. and a trailer, and we would we made a deal where we would go 
uh, three days sleep in the box van, one day get a hotel. <laughs> three days sleep in the box van. <laughs> three on, one off. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and we did races in Florida, lots lots in Florida. One time we all showed up at Florida. I, I can't remember exactly what track, maybe Pensacola in the summer, in the winter. And we all raced. It was They would pay like five to 800 bucks to win. Okay. And we raced each other. And we, at the end of the race, we looked at it and we went, okay, there's Mark Martin, Rusty Wallace, Alan Quickie, Dick Trickle, Mike Seneker, or Bob Seneker, and one of us won, and one of us got like fifty dollars for fifth. <laughs> right. yeah. Beat all the locals, yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah. But it was like a mini ASA race. Yeah. And we all went, hmm, this is not good. We're all standing around together. Somebody pulled out a copy of National Speed Sport News, which was the racing paper yeah, of right. the day, yeah. and it had all the schedules for all the Florida right. races. And we put it. I remember on the hood of Rusty Wallace's hauler, and we all stood around. And we, you know, we circled, like, next weekend at Bradenton, circled that. RW, Rusty Wallace would go to that <laughs> one. Pensacola, <laughs> Pensacola that same weekend, uh. circled. AK, Alan Quirky would go to that one. <laughs> circled the one in Miami, and Mike Seneker, or Bob Seneker would go to that right, one. Right. And we split the Florida series up, so we weren't yeah, racing gosh. against each other. Right. So we could all make 800 bucks a night, right. rather than race against right. each other. So we split the whole two months up. Communist <laughs> little stock car racers. <laughs> Full-on communism. Yep. <laughs> yep. So uh, that's the kind of stuff stuff we well, do. Anyway, one time we, we have BOP. I don't understand why there's that north-south rivalry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> so weird. And so now we have BOP. We have BOP now. We yeah. don't need <laughs> oh, no. Be like, oh, Rusty Wallace is in there. He's a platinum. Right. So he's not allowed. He's not right. He yeah. starts two laps down. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. It's fun. That's a good story. <laughs> yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah, I haven't heard that. And the last one, I can do 30 seconds. That's Going fine. to Rock, uh, sorry, started Rockford Speedway, where Alan and I and my brother Cole, are, he's three years younger than me, we're driving down there. We do Rockford Speedway. We're coming back and uh, with the car and the trailer, just the three of us, and Alan is like starting to fall asleep, like driving back. And I'm like, stop, Alan, stop. We pull over to the side of the road. And I... I can't remember why this happened, but my brother, who was about, must have been 14 at the time, didn't have his driver's license, he, we had him drive. Maybe he was 13, I don't remember. And he liked cream soda, you know the cream soda? So we're driving along, and, and my brother Cole's driving along, and Alan's trying to keep him awake, him awake by feeding him cream soda, as Alan always says, is hey. <laughs> Hey, cool. Here's another cream soda. <laughs> Have another cream soda. <laughs> what is going on? Okay. Yeah, I know. And we got a 13-year-old driving us back with the hull in the trailer back because good. me and Alan couldn't stay awake <laughs> good. anymore. Good, good, good. And we're feeding them <laughs> cream sodas to stay awake. <laughs> Somehow we got home. Okay. But I mean, that's the intensity. It was like, right. we got to get home. We got to get home. Yeah. And it wasn't far. Rockford to Milwaukee was right. like a one-hour drive. But right, we were right, right. dead. Right. Yeah. So, anyway. That's awesome. They had awesome. the All-American 400, they called yep. it. And that was basically the all the ASA guys and all the All-Pro guys got together yeah, in Nashville. Sort of north versus south of, yeah. of Stock Car Racing. And had the big yeah. race. And I think it counted for the final points race for each series, too. So, I remember. Have you got time for a quick story on this? Uh, no. No, no time. I dare you. <laughs> Please. So, we're in the shop planning for this. We were, th I think, I can't remember if we were leading the points. I think we were leading the points going into the All-American 400. And this was the days when NASCAR teams were changing motors. Yeah. Motors, it was legal to change motors, and they had all the quick disconnects. Mid-weekend, right. yeah. No, during the race. Oh, what? what? 
No, oh. no, they were changing motors during the race. Somebody will go back and Google it and figure out when it is, but, and I don't remember the times, but a motor would blow up, they'd roll down pit lane, and they would literally change a motor in 15 minutes. And they huh. had practiced it in the shop with, you know, quick disconnects right, and oil yeah, tanks right. that quick disconnect no and all of that. Do that. Okay. And they'd go back out. And those were the days when you could lose 15 minutes and still finish in the top 15 in a NASCAR yeah, race. Yeah, right, right, right. We got it down cold. We could do it in uh, about 32 minutes in the shop with everything cold. Right. Out to in. We rolled out to the pits at Nashville with an engine and a transmission bolted <laughs> to the back like of the crash box. Yeah. Just in case. Right. right. <laughs> and I remember rolling by with it, uh, Rusty Wallace's pit, and Rusty was in his pit, and he looked over, and he goes, what are you doing? I said, well, I don't know. We might need this. He goes, you're insane. You're not going to need that. And if you do, you're toast anyway. You never know. Yeah, right. yeah. Rusty thought we were crazy. Yeah. And so as it worked out we're running around and we're in the top two or three and we're right there in the points lead and all of a sudden 100 laps into a 400 lap race kaboom motor blows up right and alan we had talked about this too alan's smart guy motor blows up going on the front story <coughs> alan goes right in the groove rides all the way around for a lap and a half with the motor expiring and right. puking Just oil everywhere. every place <laughs> oiled the track down because so we need yeah, a long yeah, yellow yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> rolls down into the pit lane and we go to it. Right. And yeah. we're changing motors and it's it's hot now. Right, right. The oil tanks and everything right. and we're changing it and we're back out and we did it. You know, the adrenaline's pumping so it was yeah. like, I th it was 28 minutes. It was under 30 minutes. It's right. the best one we'd ever done. Yeah. That was hot. Rolled back out. Unfortunately, I can't end the story by, yeah, we won the championship. Well, we ended up third. Yeah. But <laughs> well, we didn't end we up did. sixth or yeah, whatever. Right, but yeah, right, so right. The engine change thing was pretty cool but that's the kind of stuff that Allen was all about. There was no stone unturned. Yeah. There was, you know, uh, it was intense, ultimately too much. Mm -hmm. And I think he suffered from it. I, we actually, I can tell the story on how we all, him and I parted. Yeah, we, yeah. Um, he got so intense. There were episodes, like I remember we won. So he's from Milwaukee. I'm from that area. That's the race to win. ASA had a race at the at mile. Milwaukee yeah, Mile, yeah, which yeah, is okay. like the big race. Yes, that was right. their Daytona 24 or whatever. Right. It was the first. They had it um, broadcast on ESPN oh, cool. a oh, couple wow. years cool. in a row. Yeah. So it was a big deal. And so that's the one we wanted to win. Well, we did win it. But the toll on the crew from Allen, the flying guys, yeah. was so much over the races leading up to that and the years that the guys who had stuck it out for the years and stuff we won the race alan's on the getting interviewed and yeah, yeah, yeah and we're time to pack up the pits like you do right. and the guys came to me i was uh, not officially team manager but i was the other guy who was full-time <laughs> yeah right 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 <laughs> and i was the guy that handed them their 100 bucks for going over the wall right. after each race and i handed them their 100 bucks and they all said we're out of here yeah i said what said, we're out of here. I said, yeah, I don't blame you. I said, Alan can pack his own blankety-blank stuff up in his own trailer. Sure. And Can we bleep blankety-blank? Yeah. <laughs> I bleeped it for you. <laughs> so we actually bleep it. What did he say? He said, blankety-blank. <laughs> yeah, so, and that's true. Alan and I, the race was over. Alan came back to that pitch. He goes, where are the guys? How come everything isn't loaded up? I said, no, me and you, we're loading all this stuff up. Take yeah. all the guns down, call the hoses fuel cans all of that and and he's like why 
I said, Alan, the way you treat these guys, you treat them like they're, uh, I remember saying, you treat them like they want this as bad as you do. Well, they should. No. <laughs> yeah. No one does. They're not on the PA getting all the glory. Right. Well, also, like, he's just that that determined and that, yeah. you know, Absolutely. intense. No one's like that. It got to it got to the point where at the end we had five, six crew guys that were really good and they all didn't want to work there anymore. Right. And so I either had to get six or seven new crew guys or a new driver. Right. Yeah. That's it. And and it was, was like kind of hard because the yeah. team was started with my dad and Alan and, and then I came in a little later. It was started for him. Right. And we had some sponsors and stuff, so we wanted to keep it going. It would be nice to keep it going with Alan, but before I get to the end story, is some incidents, like I remember at Nashville one time, car was up in the air, and Alan and I are standing kind of next to the guy changing shocks, talking about, you know, what are we going to do next, or the setup, or whatever. And Alan, I see Alan kind of glancing over all the time at this guy changing the shock, and he's not doing it at the speed that Alan thinks he should. Alan goes over to him and literally knocks you know squats down bumps him out of the way knocks him on the ground picks up the wrenches uh, off the ground and starts changing the shock himself all right I'm like alan you can't do that you know if the guy's not changing it fast enough we'll talk about it after the day and say hey what do you need yeah. how do we, we it's really important to change it fast but you can't just knock the guy on the ground yeah but he wasn't doing it right so, well you can't do that so ultimately got to the end and i went to alan's house one day after we had made the decision, we had to basically fire him from his own team. Yeah. Because technically this was Transact, so right. it was still kind of your dad's. So it was my yeah. dad's team. Yeah. yeah. But started for Alan, right. with Alan. So right. it's, yeah. I guess, in a way, way, way smaller scale, it would be like Steve Jobs getting fired from Apple, you know. It was right. yeah, his right. deal, but right. then it became not his deal. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. But it's right. still really his kind yeah. of thing. So anyway, we got, uh, I said, Alan, you know, went through all this stuff in, in the calm, not race mode, intense mode. And he's like, you're right. You're right. I know. That's, I don't, I just, he said, I want these guys to want it as bad as I do. And I said, no one does. No one on the planet does. So these guys got family and kids and things like that. And they love racing and they give it everything they got. But nobody gives it like you. Nobody's that intense. You right. will not find anybody that intense. And I said, so you got to figure out a way to work with these guys and get the most out of them right. for your benefit. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I know, I know. Well, you know. And so I said, we're going to find a different driver. He goes, I don't blame you. He said, I got to figure this out. But he goes, you know, this really sucks because this is a good team and I made won a lot of races and, mm -hmm. and I don't know what I'm going to do now. But, man, I know what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to drive for anybody else. I have to have my own team, 100% control, so I can never get fired. I'm not driving for anybody else. I said, probably the best thing for you. Yeah. yeah. And then I said, just try to keep your crew guys, you know, motivate them to work for you. Right. Don't expect them to work as hard as you. Nobody ever does. Yeah. And that was that. I mean, this guy is insane. He would, insane in a pretty cool way. I think yeah, a right, lot of us right. wish we could be that yeah, intense. Absolutely. Yeah. But you can't have any kind of life. Yeah. I went sports car racing as an engineer pretty much right after that. 
Now we kind of want to set the scene for you guys, what Wisconsin racing really is all about. It has much more depth than we really gave it credit for, and nobody could tell us better than that than Jim Trito, who's been a longtime local motorsport radio host. He's been a track announcer. He's just a son of Wisconsin motorsports. And so we sat down with Jim at Polly's Pub, where he hosts his own show called The Racing Roundup. And he was very helpful, gave us a lot of insight, gave us connections to other people to interview. So have a listen to Jim as he explains really what Wisconsin racing is all about. So, so I'm not from here, but I can literally look out the window and see the Milwaukee Mile yeah. from yeah. here. So this is like the spot if, uh, if you're a Milwaukee local, especially who goes out here for a Saturday night of racing. Yeah, and yeah. the neat thing is it's central because uh, you can get to probably six racetracks from here, mm -hmm. including, right. including a drag strip. Right. That's a Division three, I think, for and, NHRA. And obviously, being sort of one of the like Wisconsin radio voices, you can you can probably speak better than anybody about what the Wisconsin racing scene is. Um, like you say, there's so many racetracks. Everyone we have talked to, I mean, we hear about the Mile, we hear about Slinger, but yeah. if if you're not in the South, it seems like Wisconsin is where you want to be if oval racing is, is your thing. Right. It, it really it really has been a really good hotbed. Yeah. Because of the number of races. Right. Yeah. Central Wisconsin is where Tom Raffner and Dick Trickle and, and Jim Sauter would race four or five, six times a week. Jeez. So when Mark, literally when Mark Martin was going to go racing uh, away from Arkansas, he literally moved up here. Right. Or yeah. would travel up here. Yeah. Same thing with Rusty Wallace. He said, if we want to learn something, we got to race a lot. Right. We can't just do a 30 lap race on a Saturday and then wait till next Saturday and run 30 more laps. Right. right. So that really, I think between that and the ASA series having such good competition, you could run your late model at Batesville if there's a paved track there, and you could bring that to run ASA, or you could run that on a short track around here. Right. And huh. where there's cars, there's talent, and where there's talent, the guys who win are the guys who usually move on. Yeah. And yeah. So, uh, so we we want to have you on. Obviously, you've been just in our project an insanely useful resource just to sort of help us get get Thank hooked you. up with where we're going. Um, now you're technically, I mean, related to the Wisconsin, you know, a little bit after Alan's time. In the early years. Yeah. Um, um, I actually was in the stands watching him, and I do recall him coming out his first time in a dirt late model. Uh, it was a, might have not been his very first car, but he had a tape number three next to a big two on the door. I remember that coming out for qualifying. My guy, yeah. I don't remember his 68 Camaro, whatever that was, the number 73. I don't remember that. Right. That was in 73. I would have been seven years old. But I was there when he raced that dirt track. And I was there when he ran Slinger and Kakana. I wasn't as much of a pavement guy then. Yeah. But through this radio show I do, that Charlie Jepper started in 1985, with a really good friend of Alan's was the 97 LPX sponsor. I got involved with the show calling in go-kart results. Okay. At okay. the go-kart track Alan started. That was like your then I'm Then I'm talking to racers because it's a live audience show. Uh -huh. And if, if Road America had a IndyCar driver come in, Bobby Rahal would be on the show. And yeah. he would walk in and we'd interview him. Yeah. So I got to know Alan through that show, yeah. and through Terry's late night phone calls, got to know more about him and more of a fan. One of the things we kept hearing is that, you know, obviously people who knew Alan's story within the cup ranks was that he was a bit of an outsider, but he was a bit of an outsider even in his home state of Wisconsin. Um, but he, he had a specifically unique upbringing that might have kind of put him in a different mold than other people. Uh, uh, so for somebody who didn't know who, who Alan was, I mean, what were some of the unique things about him as, as starting with age eight, you know? Well, Alan was unique in the fact that his dad was such a successful team mechanic engine builder, could do anything in what was the king of all racing around here was USAC stock car racing. So Alan grew up in the world of his dad, Jerry, was so involved in that race team and his 
day job was building engines and managing this stuff that was winning championships in USAC. Well, Alan wasn't really part of that. Alan was raised by his stepmom. His younger brother had passed away at a young age. His mom had passed away at a young age. Okay. And so by literally, by like late junior high age, his grandmother is raising him yep. without even his brother. And then his grandmother passes away. Yeah. Um, so literally, he goes into high school. Dad's gone all the time. The entire family he had isn't around anymore. No, and that really kind of sheltered him from trusting a lot of people. Right. And that's what I think really honed his early years of, if I want to do this, I have to do it myself because no one else is going to do it with me or for me. His dad said, you need to get a college degree before I let you really get behind anything you do racing-wise. So when he was in high school, he was racing some go-karts with his friends at a, a local track. But I got to know him as that dirt racer at Hales Corners who was in the elite top division of 50 cars called late models, big tires. He never raced anything besides go-karts prior to that. So when he jumped into that, he did okay. Well, I mean, I sat there every Saturday and watched how he did. I wouldn't recall him as one of the favorites, one of the fast guys. But I also then learned soon after that, as he got better at it, he could use that same race car and race pavement. And with his ability to work on everything himself, teach himself how to do things, get people involved, circle friends around, convince people to get things for him, buy things for him, help him out along the way. A lot of people in Milwaukee were affected by what he did because they all... Either were people he borrowed parts from, or he built something for them in return, or raced that against them uh, as often as he could. It was a challenging time for a lot of guys because not many people could work full time and run dirt and asphalt with sometimes the same car. One of the names, of course, we hear a lot about is Jerry Kolicki, Alan's father. Um, Jerry, as you said earlier, was a very famous engine tuner um, who was very, very successful in the USAC ranks. And yet, you're telling me stories as we will proceed to hear of Alan having to go out and do it in own, his own way and building his own cars. Where was Jerry Kowicki in all of this? Still building engines for race teams. He wasn't on the USAC tour anymore. USAC kind of dissolved in about 83. That's right when Alan was really doing well, traveling, doing more than just local racing. Um, and it was a big jump for Alan to find the funding and someone to believe in him to go from that late model he knows so well to what would be on the ASA platform, which is pretty much a dedicated car for that touring right. series. So despite having a racing father, by either between schedule or simply the way that Jerry Kowicki was, Alan had to figure this out on his own. He did not even, it's very common for a racing family to kind of nurture their kid up through the yeah. ranks. Yeah. Ryan's the exception, because that was not the case. I was going to say, this um, actually yeah. sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, um, but not for but, a bad but not reason. for Alan, because yeah. Jerry was like, no, you're going to figure this out on your own. And, and Jerry uh, didn't go to a lot of races that Alan raced even when he got the NASCAR. Mm -hmm. um, I know there's a photo of Alan and Jerry under the hood here at Milwaukee at the mile uh, where Jerry's helping change the car. Rate. Car, yeah, yeah. And the reason why that picture was taken was, holy crap, Jerry's helping Alan. Get him, get quick. Yeah, yeah right, right. Uh, my friend Russ Lake took the photo. He's like, I never saw Jerry anywhere near Alan's stop. And yeah. if he did, it'd be, he'd be kind of, be, you know, arms folded, standing in the background like, yep, okay, if he needs me, I'll be here, but I'm not going to jump in and grab a wrench and help him do anything. So um, and Jerry might have done a lot for Alan. But when it came to what I saw at the racetrack and what people remember seeing, Jerry was not around that much. Yeah. Um, and when Alan ran NASCAR, Jerry would come to some races that were convenient. We've heard that in the last two years, roughly, of his ASA career was when he really turned to that serious, I'm not messing around. I have yep. no time for monkey business, all business here. Yep. Um, I'm just curious, like, if you had an impression of him when you were around him. Not necessarily that you got to know him, but was it... Did you see that kind of transition? Did you see him before when I he was? I saw him stiff. I, did, yeah. I saw him distant. I saw him kind of, I wouldn't say single-minded, but if it's in a social setting, 
He knew he wanted to be there and talk to someone specifically. Okay. And now that you bring that up, there's one instance where I went with a team from Wisconsin uh -huh. that raced at Concord, North Carolina, Concord Motor Speedway. Yep. And what that was is like they had a 10-race series there called the Big Ten Series. They paid a lot of money. Uh -huh. So I drove down to this race, and we went to a bar. It's no longer there. It's called the Sandwich Construction Company in Concord. And we're having dinner and having a couple of drinks, and it walks in Allen by himself. We look at him, and he looks at us. He's like, what are you guys doing here? And we're like, what are you doing here? And he was hunting money. He's trying to find a sponsor. He's, so he's going trying, to, trying to meet somebody that might have been at the bar. He's panhandling open doors to go look for sponsorship. Just so in case someone's there that he knows or, hey, yeah. Oh, okay. He's not going into the sandwich place asking for money. No, he's going in no, looking No, he's for not people. asking for quarters. Okay. He's, asking, okay. he's hoping someone would be there. Fair enough. But he never would tell you. He'd be like, oh, I'm just hanging just out. Just looking yeah. around. Yeah. <laughs> so there's us, eight crew guys from Wisconsin, drinking beer and having burgers. Yeah. And there's Alan going, oh, well, maybe I'll come back to see you guys if I had, you know, they're not here. Uh -huh. They weren't there. So we shot the race for maybe 20 minutes, and then the next day we were like, hey, if you want to come by, mm -hmm. we got a pass for you. We'll just stand on our hall and watch the race. Yeah. So over the years, you know, we were talking about ASA. It seemed like it hit a point where Alan sort of was the guy out here with, with being like the guy that just never lost at Slinger um, and, and ASA and whatnot. Um, obviously with your years of, of doing everything that you do out here, how many of these guys come through that they become like the be-all and end-all of Wisconsin short tracks and that, that kind of stops there? Um, it, it really comes through in cycles because Dick Trickle was here for so long. Yeah. He didn't move down, really down to NASCAR until 1989 at the age of 48. Wow. That's only because Mike Alexander got hurt at Pensacola okay. and wasn't right, so they had to hire a replacement driver. Right. But he had been in the Daytona 500 in like 1972. Right. So we had these guys like Jim Sauter and the Miller brothers here with NASCAR there and backs. Yeah. So the taste was there. Right. Well, and to your point, like, you're only going to go so far out yeah. here, right? Like, you'll win some prize money, but but if you want to make it big, it's not in Wisconsin. You're, you got to race here a lot, but you aren't right. going to get that notoriety or the big money or the, right. you know. Right. So that was uh, Jim Trito kind of setting up the local Wisconsin scene. Of course, before that was Jeff Brown, who was around when Alan started really establishing himself in Wisconsin. But we're actually going to jump out of order uh, and meet up with uh, somebody who helped Alan very, very early in his career. Of course, uh, when you're just out of college and ready to go racing, the first thing you need is a car. So he was immediately turned on to a local guy named Greg Krieger. Uh, Greg's kind of an interesting guy. He's a longtime racing car builder. He actually does that for fun. His day job, so to speak, is he uh, owned and operate a very successful engineering and manufacturing company out in Wisconsin. Uh, and then sort of the engineering of race cars, which is sort of a fun hobby that he did. And uh, he decided to take on this young punk. So uh, we met up with Greg at uh, First Watch, which was a cute little breakfast place in Brookfield, Wisconsin. And uh, here's some awesome stories from Greg. So my introduction to get really tight with Alan was through Bill Strom. Okay. And Bill had built three cars for him, and he was 100% on board for everything I ever did. And he told Alan, you got to go with Greg. So, as was in the the, the other uh, video, was uh, Alan comes to me and I don't know, you know that, I don't, I know Alan's name, but I don't know Alan personally. Yeah. So I figure, well, I got to sell this guy on. This got to be good if I can get sell him a car, and so I got to sell him. Well, he was already sold. Yeah. Yeah. See, so, <laughs> uh, you know, he doesn't walk around without knowing what he's going to do. Yeah, sure. Because if he were here now, 
in 18, he'd be knowing exactly what he'd be doing in 2020. Right. Because that's yeah. the way his mind works. Yeah. yeah. And so. It's not like us. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where we go We next. literally don't know where our next appointment is. <laughs> well, you know, you know I, I group people into people who make emotional decisions and make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> and what? you got people who make uh, conservative or common sense decisions. Okay, we would and be right 80% of the time. Right. Yeah. Well, Alan <laughs> made decisions conservative, common sense. 98% of the time. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this guy was wired that there was no room for emotion. Right. This had to be go. This yeah. had to be 100%, 100 miles an hour. We got to make every second count. Yeah. We can't waste a minute. Yeah. And so now we get to his do lists. You know, and I've gone, you know, in school, had courses on time management. Well, he did too, being an engineer, that's all part of the cycle. Yeah. He'd make his do lists. And then he would take and reorganize them. He'd start picking them out. So he had 13 things on his mind for that day. So he'd write them all down just as fast as he can think of them. Mm -hmm. Then he had to organize them into the, the most important yeah. and the least important. Sure. So every do list he had was primary and secondary. Mm -hmm. Well, in running my, <coughs> I had a large machine shop for 29 years. In making my do lists, I'd find that when I did the big stuff, the little stuff got caught up in the swirl. Yeah. And you got these things done without even knowing you were doing them. And pretty soon your do list got a third done and you're still working on the top third, you know. And so that was the way Alan was. It, it, this, these lists, this, this was a big deal for him. Yeah. Sure. My business was so entailing and so encompassing yeah. that... Alan said, Greg, you either got to be here working on the car every night and every weekend. And I said, there ain't no way. Yeah, right. <laughs> you <laughs> so know, because the business comes first. Say, so the car building, because you were a car builder, basically, for, for, for guys that you wanted to help out. Kind of like chassis and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but this was not your mainstay income. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, yours was, was the engineering. This company. was just having fun. You were too smart for that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I built 14 cars in my you know, car building period. Right. But uh, the crux of it was... Uh, the manufacturing business. So, uh, well, legend has it that he helped you come up with a design for a, for a late model chassis. Was that the case, or was it something you had done and he, being an engineer, might have, through folklore, had something to do with it? I, I drew the whole car up. Yeah. So I, I'm a detailed guy that on a drawing board can just whip this stuff right out. Mm -hmm. I can do it. I can draw it. I can read it. And so... Uh, he was aggravated that I was wasting so much time making this drawing because I wanted everything to be state-of-the-art kind of a thing. Yeah. And so finally when I uh, got the drawing done, he would just stand there and stare at it. You know, and, and he bought some Howl parts. He brought in some Howl parts, mm -hmm. and we fabricated a lot of the stuff. And, in fact, this isn't even... Uh, this isn't even his car, but um, oh, cool! Yeah. Neat. So yeah. the idea here is, you guys could have this. This oh, is all you. spelled out about my concept of racing is horsepower, tires, and rear steer. Okay. Okay. The reason Kevin Harvick is running so good <laughs> is because they figured out how to cheat with rear steer. Yeah. 
And, you know, the cameras, NASCAR has cameras to see how that car skews when it comes down the straightaway. Yeah. Because they want to know who's doing what. Yeah. And the, gr- the most uh, intricate, detailed guy on rear steer was Dick Trickle. Mm-hmm. Interesting. If you went to a racetrack and he wasn't in the heat race qualifying or in the feature, the car was up in the air and the rear wheels were off and somebody was underneath there. Yeah. What were they doing? They were tweaking the rear steer. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So Trickle is running a 100 lapper at Slinger. You guys never saw Slinger, huh? Not yet. No, I'm we're hoping to do tomorrow morning. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. it's cool. But yeah. we know about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so he's doing a 100 lapper and where is he? He's running fourth, fifth, sixth. He's just cruising. Right. And he's letting these other guys just suck up their tires. Yeah. And he's got this rear steer thing all figured out. So he gets down to about 85 laps, and then he just starts putting the pedal down. Because he's still got tires left. Yeah, he's yeah, good to yeah, go. Yeah. Right. Psst, he's gone. Go right, right on the outside. Zoom. Yeah. Right. And so this rear steer thing, I, I got Alan really into that. And, and so uh, Alan wasn't big on it. And, and Alan had a, a different strategy in that he had a piece of two-by-four. So a two by four is one and a half by three and a half. Okay. Okay. And he had it cut four and a half or five inches long. And all he would do is he would take, if his car didn't feel right, he didn't use scales. I mean, we had scales to use. He didn't, he didn't want to bother with it. Hmm. He would take that piece of wood and he would put it underneath. This is the back. But yep. in the front, sure. there's another kick up to go to the front wheel. Yep. He would, he'd put it between the, the pit asphalt yeah. and that frame rail. Uh, and then he would rotate that block. Yeah. And if that block didn't go in the way he wanted it for that track, he'd go start turning its screws. And he would start raising or lowering the car, and he'd just push the weight around until he got what he wanted for the right rear. Uh-huh. Right. So that he was just a tiny little bit loose. He all just, you know, everybody goes fast, right. goes loose. Right. Yeah. You know, Carl Lars- Larson is... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A perfect example. Bush, what you just said, though, which yeah. I really like, is that it wasn't just engineering. It was engineering in a cheap and efficient way right. to get the job done quickly. Oh, yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. He basically yeah. built a jig. Yeah. And he's like, no, I got to do this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's going to be quick. And he was good, so he knew it worked. So you get it done. Yeah. yeah. Now, because you seem like very detail-oriented, when he would take his block of wood out to do that, are you like, just use the damn scales? Or, or you no, weren't. You like, don't tell Alan anything, really, because no. at this point he's obviously younger than you. You know, yeah. where you weren't like, listen, kid, you couldn't even then. Interesting. Never. Yeah. Never. You could never tell Alan. See, this is one of the reasons Alan and his stepmom. Yeah, Thelma. Thelma. Yeah. Always, they just never got along. Okay. Yeah. I mean, never. Yeah. And uh, his dad. I didn't see him very often. Yeah. He helped him in a real crisis. Yeah. But otherwise, Alan was on his own. Alan right. was doing his own thing. And and if they had to go through and, and, and put some mains or, or rod bearings or something in or do something to run Saturday night somewhere or Sunday night at yeah. Slinger. That was on him. They got the motor all apart Sunday morning, you know, and he and his dad are rebuilding the engine and they're in the truck and they're heading for Slinger at 6.30 and... Yeah, and that's the job. Yeah, yeah got to do it. Was Jerry that much different from Alan in that? Like, were they the same kind of personality? Like, could, could let's say, Norm Nelson tell Jerry, like, hey, I don't want you to do it like this, do it like that? No, no, no. Jerry was more passive, much uh-huh. more passive. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Okay. And 
I really can't say where Alan got the character from that, you know, that created who Alan was. You know, you mentioned this a couple times that Alan obviously did have a reputation. I don't know if difficult is the right word, but for being very, very demanding because he put in the hours himself and he was expecting right. everybody else to. I mean, Intense. You were, you were telling us the great story of how he was upset you weren't giving all nights and all weekends right. for his program. Right. Um, I mean, is that would you say that's accurate, that he was just a guy who just put demands on everybody? It wasn't so much a demand. Yes, he put demands on everybody. Exactly. Yeah. But he came to me and he said, you know, you've got to decide what you want to do. Yeah. Either all the time or I'll find somebody else to help. So I had to walk away. Right. But yeah. I understood. Now, were you, you know, were that you was a, making, a mutual agreement. Were you making money on this deal or were you just helping him out? Oh, just helping him. That's what I figured. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> you need to give your life up for my dream right. was basically right. what he was saying. Um, and this is late model days. Mm-hmm. We good? Anybody need anything? Thank you. Oh, no, I've got mine. I've got mine. It's over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is, <laughs> late, this is late model days. How old, how old is he at the time? I'm going to guess he was three years out of engineering school right so he's still in his 20s so he's probably 27 28 yeah. i'm gonna guess 25 27 28 right so you have a mid-20s kid telling you yelling at you to give up all of your free time for this. and you're building cars for other people living your own life mm-hmm. <laughs> nine yards and he's like hey hey gregor but you know you had to respect him right because no matter what you could think of he was there too yeah, he yeah. he knew. Yeah, well, that that seems to be the theme that we keep hearing is that it's not as though he's like, you need to do this. All right, I, I'm going to go see a movie. No, yeah, right. It's because he was putting this in. So why can't everybody? He else? was there all the time. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned Slinger a little bit. Um, so I'm from California. We may see it tomorrow morning. We think. Um, what am I going to see? What is what is Slinger is a, is a name we keep hearing, and I literally never heard of Slinger till a week ago. Um, tell me, tell me what Slinger is. Slinger produced a lot of racers. Mm-hmm. So Slinger then was a flat dirt track. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then somebody bought it and they built it in a high bank. And um, you know they're struggling, like every track owner right. is struggling right now. And when you say high bank, I mean it's high. I am told mm-hmm. it's high. It's mm-hmm. high. it's like eighty-nine degrees. Yeah. <laughs> For it's, a short track, it's, it's high. pretty damn yeah. high. Yeah. Yeah. Alan obviously drove there. I think Matt Kenseth race yeah. there. Yeah. Um, I've seen, like, if you were from Wisconsin, the guys who did well at Slinger were the guys who Kyle Bush has been there, and, mm-hmm. you know. Eric Jones. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. So, outside of your business money and happy marriage, we do, we're very similar. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> the... You look the, the same age. We, we're, <laughs> uh, if you're, if you, you know, this was, a, this was a hobby for you. I mean, you're obviously a, a fantastic car builder, um, but this, this was not a business for you. Um, so it seemed to me like you just help out the people that you want to help out. And so Alan fit in that category. Um, you know, uh, thinking about a business like mine, which nothing I'm doing is nearly as hard as building race cars, but we provide a service that we can help people out if we really want to help them. And so it's not uncommon for people to come to me looking for favors. And if I like somebody, I'll, I'll help them out. Um, but at a certain point, the asks become a little too much. But the, you still have to root for this guy from the beginning. So when you first met Alan... What made you say, okay, this is the kid I'm willing to put this kind of time into? Well, did he pay for the car? Like, did he buy a chassis from you? Or you guys he just paid for everything except okay. my time. Okay. 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 So he's a customer, but yeah. you also yeah. probably sense, like, he's got a good, you know, good chance right. of doing something with it. I had a lot of opportunities to sell cars from that car. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. it probably so did really, it did re- okay. really it well. Did, yeah. And yeah. But yeah. when it got down to paying me for my time. Right. 
Everybody wanted me to work for five bucks an hour. In racing? How dare In you, racing? Sir. How dare you, sir? How dare you? So, you know, it was easy to kind of fade away from from the the the, right. the you know the impact and the intent, but. But I was, my head was so filled with racing from my dirt track racing and from my, my passion for cars sure. that, well, it was the next thing to do. Right. So he did it. Right. So with Alan, what you saw was somebody that basically could make you win. Right. Okay. When we get into the car design and what I was doing to that point, there were things I tried to talk him into that I couldn't. Yeah. In terms of, like, design options and setup yeah. options? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And... There are some things that I got so mad at him. <laughs> I don't know if you want to get to that point right now, but absolutely, sure. Okay, <laughs> we're putting the car together, and I said, Alan, we have to put a tube in the roll cage from the top of the roll cage here down to where the kickup is in the frame for the right front wheel. We don't need that, he says. I said, What do you mean you don't need that? So. I got in my car, I went over to Brookfield Square to the craft shop, and I bought all different sizes of balsa wood. And I built a model chassis about this big out of a glue gun and balsa wood. And then I took across the front of the car, well, I took the back of the car, and I clamped it down to a bench like this, and I had the front sticking out like this. And then I put a, 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 a strip of something on here, and I took fishing weights, and I hung them on that bar across the front of the chassis. And I says, okay, let's watch. Let's measure what, how much this twists. Right. Okay. So how far down? I put so many ounces of weight on there, and it went down a half inch and so on. I said, all right, now let's put this tube in there. So I took the glue gun. I put the tube in there. It didn't move at all. He didn't say boo. It was all done. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he was convinced yeah. that I was right and he was wrong. Right. Okay. Yeah, and awesome. you didn't have many chances like that. Yeah, yeah. right. But, if, but <laughs> he saw he it. Would. I was like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but to your point, he wasn't so pig headed that like he had to be right all the well, time. Even then he just he didn't had to go, go Nope, nope, don't care. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. He's like, oh, okay. Okay, you win. Yeah. But that's also the level you had to go to to prove it. Right. Yeah. So you you know, you hit a point where you sort of had to walk away and say, You're on your own because I I can't make this my life. Right. Um, not shortly after that. He decides he's going to pack it up. He's off to Charlotte. Right. Correct. Um, what did you think of that that idea at the time, of him, you know, with no money, no resources, no million dollar sponsor, he's going to go make it big at the top top level of NASCAR, yeah. not go to move down to Charlotte and do like a junior category. That did not look like an Allen move. Really? No. Okay. Not at all. So you didn't think it was wise? Well, it sounds like you were saying earlier he no. already had his plans ahead. Yeah, he did. He, and then this one, he, he didn't even have a place to stay when he got there. That's right. Well, yeah, he really struggled there. He really, really, really struggled. When he first got down there. When he first got down yeah. there. Yeah. But it's like anything in that when you don't have any money, you can't make this whole process work uh, from the point of view of, of you use a lot of tires. You yeah. have a lot of horsepower. Yeah. Well, that is, so that's where all the money goes. Yeah. <laughs> and guys. Yeah. yeah. And people. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so, <clears throat> I, you know, it's amazing that he he actually take little baby steps and then he took a big step. Well, you said you said ninety eight percent of his moves 
are very calculated. Very calculated. Every. You're saying this is part of the two percent. Right. Yeah. The yeah. move to Charlotte. Yeah. That's exactly right. The biggest right. move in his life. That's right. right. Was yeah. was part of his two like percent. The only time he left Wisconsin. Yeah. You know? Yes. He wanted yeah. it so bad, but at the same time, in ASA, he was doing relatively well, yeah. and there was a trucking line that sponsored Mark Martin, mm-hmm. and um, I don't know if Strupp drove for him or not, but. He had a lot of success there. Well, there was a situation where this trucker had money. Hmm. I mean, a little money. Yeah, right. He could spend a hundred grand a year on cars, yeah. and so you divide that out to twenty, thirty races. It's just tiny little amounts of money. Right. right. There were nice cars, and so, and Mark Martin really. They were, you know, uh, another guy that he probably was pretty tight with would be uh, Rusty Wallace. Yeah. yeah. You know, so. When he went down there, our, you know, our distance got bigger and bigger sure. and bigger yeah, and bigger, sure. yeah. you know, yeah. because I'm still here and he's doing his thing. But what I, my connection to NASCAR was that my best customer was a race nut, a purchasing agent. Okay. So he and I would do all of the Indy cars. We would do Indy, Elkhart Lake. Uh, Michigan International. Okay. What do you and mean you would do? As it like as a fan, just go check it out. Pardon? What do you mean you would do? We score. We oh, do you sc- score. Okay. Scoring okay. for, okay. um, for the IndyCar, okay. which you know that was just a nightmare with them fighting each other and who was going to win <laughs> yeah, and yeah, Penske's yeah. and the whole thing. Right. Uh, so for that reason, Ron and I were at Michigan, and then you know now. You know, I'm walking by, I'm standing behind the car, and Alan is over there, and he just gave me a wave, and bang, he's back working. Yeah, and you're a guy that he's known for a long time, but yeah, you yeah, can't. He didn't want to come over. He didn't have time to come over yeah. and say, hi, Greg, how are you? Right. He gave me a wave. He recognized, and I thought, well, okay, move on. Yeah. yeah. You know, because he's busy. Yeah, sure. And, I, you know, that's his deal. That's, that's who he is. Now we're going to hear from John Janik. John was a mechanic for a lot of race teams in Milwaukee area on stock cars and ASA and things like that, and had known Alan a really long time before eventually working for him. He ended up working for him for free for a very long time, which Sean and I couldn't wrap our heads around, but knowing the demands that Alan put on people. Unique to John was that he made the transition from Wisconsin to Charlotte when they packed up the ASA stuff and went NASCAR racing instead. And so he was able to watch Alan go from a local star to pretty much a nobody that had to make a name for himself when he got down in the NASCAR world. And so that was why we really wanted to sit down with John. We had dinner at Polly's Pub and Eatery, and we have to apologize for any of the background noise. It was trivia night, apparently, and they were not messing around. So uh, it was a little loud, but we were able to get some neat stories from John. So have a listen. Kind of explained a little bit of, you know, AS, you, you work for ASA, and, and we obviously know we're here because of Alan. Where does the racing in your life begin? Um, all the way back when I was a little, little one. Yeah. Uh, my dad had season tickets forever across the street at the Milwaukee Mile. Yeah, that's cool. Top row UU, yeah. which was the bleachers that were right next to the grandstands. You remember the seats and I can, yeah. I can remember being little, little yeah. and standing up on that top row and leaning against the fence because the only thing down was about a 50-foot fall to a roof. <laughs> yeah. Afraid. Good. So, Good. Yeah. But I... Yeah. So it all started there, and as I got older and we kept doing it, I just kept saying, you know what? I want to be on the other side of yeah, that fence. Yeah. And my dad's mechanic. Okay. Grew up in an automotive field. Um, he did his fair share of hot rods and that uh-huh. kind of stuff, but yeah. never really was into racing stuff. Okay. And then um, the sh- one of the shops that he was uh, system manager at 
a, a local guy was racing at Hales Corners, and that's really okay. where I started. I was like 14 years old working on my first race car. Sure. Yeah. I knew Alan already back then. Okay. You know, just it was from just, being around. Yeah, right? just being around because yeah. he was still running the dirt. He was still running the dirt uh, late model. Right. But back then we ran same car, asphalt, right. dirt, Swatch dirt. Yeah. 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 Now, was that the norm? Uh, were there bigger teams that had different cars, or was no, this like in the it was constant scene? This is everything. that was that was what you did. Yeah, that's um, awesome. It was you ran the same car, you, you know, you set up the car and you ran the car either on you know Sunday night was always Slinger, yeah, you know Saturday night was always Hales Corners, right. Wednesday night typically was Cedarburg, yeah, yeah. and then sometimes they Thursday nights they'd go up to Kakana and race at Kakana. Sure, yeah. So so at what point do you make the transition starting to get dirty at the racetrack versus in your garage? Um. At Hales Corners, I, for four years, got kicked out of the pits every Saturday. Is by that, sneaking in. Is that because you're too young? I, yeah, too young. Yeah, I was okay. 14 years old, and you had to be 18 to go in the pits. Right. Now, I would did, did you sneak in the back of the okay. I would sneak in the back of the hauler, you know, sit in the back. Right. And Pee Wee, he was a little little short guy. Okay. Every weekend, he'd kick me out, and <laughs> I'd walk around, and I'd come back in over the back and right. go right back to working on a race car. Yeah. <laughs> And oh, you're actually working too. I was actually yeah, working yeah, yeah, on yeah. it. So, and and then it got to the point. I think I was 17 and 17ish, and I started working on a late model. Uh -huh. And if he would kick me out if I wasn't doing anything, but if we were in like <laughs> qualifying line and I was changing a gear or I was doing something like that, he'd leave me alone. Okay. okay. Yeah. So there seemed to be an understanding with you and Pee Wee. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I get it. It was kind of like I'm just doing my job. When, that was when, his. When you turned 18, you were allowed to be over in the pits. Was he still giving you a hard time? Uh, oh, now you can finally be here. Right. <laughs> yeah, just busting on you a little bit. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. So. <laughs> but, that, so you, yeah. yeah. So you start wrenching at 14. Uh, when was your first paycheck? <laughs> still waiting. <laughs> no. It would have been Alan. Um, I worked for Alan for a long time yeah. without getting paid. Yeah. I mean, he paid my expenses, right. which was a lot better than some of the other teams that I worked for. Okay. I mean, some of the other things I worked, um, local tire guy, I went from working for the guy, like I said, in the sportsman car, to um, Bud Teichmiller, worked for a couple of different guys at different racetracks, you know, here and there, or went to their shops if they're nearby and tried to help what I could do yeah, at so that point in time. I'm, I'm hearing what sounds like a few years. Oh, yeah. And... This whole time you're never taking a check. Never got a check doing that. And work work that have to pay a 50, paying job. Work fifty plus hours a week as a mechanic. Right. Like a real proper like an yeah, actual job. Yeah. Yeah. Fifty hours a week plus as a mechanic during because we work um, yeah, seven in the morning until six. Yeah. So at, at and then and I would typically and then off to somebody's shop. Then I would leave and go work at somebody's shop. Uh, I used to drive every night to Watertown, which is about hour and 45 minutes away to go work no, on a race kidding. car yeah turn around be back to work here every day i you know you know if how, how do they put it if the dream's big enough for you to do whatever you got to do to yeah, get yeah, to yeah, that yeah. dream I, i'm glad you said that do you use social media at all facebook or anything like that i do yeah um what would you say to the kid <laughs> that instead of going and working a 50-hour job plus then in your spare time wrenching on anything you can get your hands on because you want to be a part of it that just posts cranky i don't know why i don't have a ride or a job or whatever posts in motorsports i would probably say if you want to do that you got to earn it yeah get off your ass yeah. yep yeah earn this earn this, earn yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. it's it's one of those things is you know 
it's not going to get handed to you. 100%. You know? So what are so on a this I, I understand volunteering. Several years is where I'm like, wow, that that blows my mind. So usually the guy volunteering isn't getting the glamorous work either. So what are some of the fun when it came to race teams? What are some of the jobs you did? Everything from getting scraping the mud and the crap off the underside of the car, yeah, to you know changing engines to you know building battery boxes, crush panels, mm-hmm. glamorous, you yeah. know all the glamorous, whatever it took to get the car ready to go either right. from you know Saturday night hills corners. Yeah. To Sunday night up at Slinger on the asphalt. Yeah. You know, bead breaking tires. Yeah. By hand, no machines. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. You know, tire yeah. irons and yeah. and a big hammer and yeah, and you're wrenching on that thing. Yeah. 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 It's not easy. So, but you would vent your frustration on Instagram. <coughs> we don't have Instagram. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I always wonder what different things would be different if we had the technology that we have today yeah. to get yourself in trouble. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. 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 I'm gonna. So at this point, you've known Alan, or you've seen him around a little bit. You're getting to know him a little bit before you start working with him. What was your opinion of him as as a dude? Like, what would you think? Of, like, or what was the yeah sort of before you would work with him? Yeah. Okay. Back when Alan was running the dirt and the asphalt in in that era, and this is like late seventies, late seventies, and I would say he was. I don't think he was or knew yet where he wanted. I, I know he wanted to go racing full-time. Yeah. That I knew. But I don't think he knew where it was going to go yet. Okay. Um, I, you know, and I didn't know because he was pretty pretty good partier then. Interesting. Back we've, then. We've, we've heard that. Do you remember, was there like a first moment you guys met? I can remember drinking... At Hales Corners, under the oak tree. You got to remember, too, back then, yeah. it was also legal to drink at 18. Oh, so okay. The good old so, days. Yeah, so yeah, it no. was, <laughs> I remember, and I don't know if anybody's told you the story about the big oak tree. No. Nope. After you got kicked out of the pits, you know, at Hales Corners. Corner. Where, where Corners, is that? Hales, oh, if you go down Highway 100, uh-huh. where the big Menards is, okay. as you're in Hales Corners itself, so that's so where Hales Corners Speedway used to be. Okay. Yeah. It's right next to the Ford dealership. Cool. Yeah, that's okay. in there. You get kicked out. So you get kicked out of there, and you went out and partied until the sun was coming up oh, at right. front of the big oak tree. And when <laughs> the sun came up, you took the car home, washed it all up, cleaned it all up, and started next one. getting ready to go to Slinger that night. For the next, yeah, for that night, right? For that yeah. night. Yeah, yeah. So that's Friday, so, Saturday. Yeah. yeah. Day. So now. He's just not. Yeah, that's now it. Here's what I'm confused <laughs> by. So this isn't you getting kicked out by yourself. You, this. There this seems to be a congregation point where this lots is of people where the, are getting kicked this out. This is where <laughs> security goes through and says, okay, guys, move it out front. Now you're in the parking lot. Now they didn't care. Now they could go home. Oh, um, in other words, when the, when the pits close we're down. In, we're at the end of racing. Oh, I thought you meant like you're kicked out because you're too young, and then this guy no, kicked no, out no. for fighting, and this no, guy no, had a snake no. with him. No, yeah. I meant okay. as in at okay, the end of the night, kicked right, guys, on the yeah. future finish. Okay. Everything's wrapped up. Don't have to go home. You can't stay here. Yeah, the midnight. I think it was – I want to always say it was around midnight. Okay. They okay. shut the pits down and boom, out to the oak tree. Everybody, all the haulers, everybody, yeah, all around the oak tree, and yeah. you know, you walked around, chit chatted with everybody, yeah. drank beer with everybody, right. and had a lot of fans. Yeah, fans sure. would stay around, yeah. so it was kind of like, you know, fans and the thing to do. drivers and crews, yeah. and and so you're up, literally, till the next night. 
Because you're up all night drinking. Pretty like, much. And then you're working on the cars, getting it changed over for a high bank asphalt race. The, thing, the things that you can do when you're young. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't, sure. I wouldn't yeah. be able to do that right now anymore. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but so uh, Al, a guy like Alan who had this reputation for being so intense and difficult, and like he, he wouldn't mind going to this kind of thing? I Back, back at that point in time, in I don't think that had that was Alan yet. Okay. Right. You know. Yeah, he's just one of the guys. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because we hear from some people that he seemed to be a bit of a, a an outsider, but only in the so sense of, like, he didn't care what other people were doing. He was doing his own thing. But it sounds like socially he was okay. He, his gears in his head were always going. Yeah. yeah. He was always looking at something and trying to figure out how to make it either go faster or make right. it work different right. or yeah. It was just like his gears were always going. Uh -huh. yeah. You could just look at him. He, he just, you know, and you could just look at some of the pictures that people have caught of him. Looks like, you know, what's this guy doing? Yeah. You know, kind of picture. And I, I was like, man, I grew up watching that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. Sitting back there with a, you know, finger kind of against his head Letting. and just kind of looking at a car right. going, yeah. you know, yeah. just giving you the, you know, so. Yeah, that's kind of how he was. Yep. Interesting. So he was always tinkering. He, he was he was very, well, he was very, very smart. Yeah. And I don't know where where he came out on the IQ chart, but I believe it was pretty high. Yeah. You know, engineer-wise, I know that he was a very good engineer. Sure. Yeah, so he wasn't necessarily educated smart. He was smart and then uses he, it and then got an education. Correct. Right. Yeah, that's cool. Sometimes sometimes I tease him about his street smarts weren't as good as his sure. book smarts. Right, yeah. I need examples. I was say, well, how would he handle that? Yeah. Could you bust his balls, or would he yeah. get he get a little pushy about it? Not really. Yeah. I mean, I think he knew. He knew. Yeah. Okay. Just so, but it was kind of like, you know, and he and he was and you could just see the difference. I mean, in the be, in the beginning, even working ASA and the USAC, I didn't get to work with him at all in the USAC because mm -hmm. it was after the Hales Corners thing. As I like I said, is I was around with a bunch of other teams, and I really didn't hook back up with Allen until must have been about 81, uh -huh. 1981, because that is also when Pat Shower got killed. Okay. And actually the weekend that I got married, right. he got killed. Wow. So, yeah. And then I didn't really know what to do or whatever, and I went down to Allen's shop down on 6th Street and started talking, talking to him a little bit. Um, through another friend had told me to go talk to him. He was looking for some help. Yeah. And started talking the same thing with Alan you know he didn't let you do nothing on a race car how do you we mean we're getting to that point where he was getting to that point where if he didn't know you or trust you yet you didn't do nothing on a race car right you clean the shop you can well, do whatever yeah. but you're not touching and start, anything yeah, yeah organize the toolbox right. do that kind of stuff right. yeah. or go through the bins see what we're missing yeah. and get that ordered and, and we've we've heard a few people talk about sort of the circle of trust that that you're sort of one of his guys or you just were somebody he didn't have time for obviously you were in the circle um, how was that process that that took a while um, yeah. i worked for alan for about two years kind of like a part-time i i, I still worked as a mechanic could. yeah um my mechanic you're not getting job, paid and so you know, you're just, and i wasn't yeah. getting paid from yeah. alan yet um alan was actually this is when i started going with him on on the weekends okay. was when he started to give uh pay for pit passes and okay. a little bit of the travel okay. not all of it maybe but a little bit of the travel okay so it was starting to get to the point where hey it's not coming out of my paycheck now right you know to do this and give you you know, extra 20 or 30 hours a week yeah, that right. I was going down to the shop to do. Yeah. So. 
but you said it took some time to kind of break through. What, was there a, how did the treatment change from day one to sort of once you felt like you're sort of at his trust level? I think it got to the point where we both, I think we both thought, I mean, he was starting to get more like Alan. He, he was getting on that line of this is where I want to go kind of thing. Okay. Right. right. And, he, and that's where I start thinking people were starting to think that he was standoffish and all the other stuff that you hear hard to deal with, hard to work with. Right. Yeah, he might have been hard to deal with, hard to work with, but because he was trying to get to where he wanted to go, that was how what he, he was. Yeah. He ate, slept, and breathed where he wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And that was his determination, and he just didn't have time for anybody that was going to help him get there. Right, yeah. <laughs> and I think that is how he came across that way. Sure. Yeah. But obviously, you know, it worked. Yeah. <laughs> you, know. <laughs> you know, like he didn't so have what, the means. And What were some of the run-ins you guys would have on that level? I mean, at a certain point, this is his dream, not yours. Um, I mean, would, would well, you get frustrated? Well, I'm not going to say it wasn't my dream because sure. my dream started back when I was five years old saying I want to be on the other side of that fence. Yeah, sure, yeah, that's yeah, fair. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and I, I and I always said that, and I've told people that all through high school. That's all I ever talked about is I want to race full time. Okay, so it it was always where I wanted to go. Yeah. So it was just like, okay, who am I going to get to hook my, you know, my wagon to? Right. It was going to help. You know, like I said earlier, is just like, you know, you always hear somebody say, hey, when I go and I do this or whatever, I'm going to bring you along, kind of thing. You know, yeah, yeah, okay, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, he did it. He, he did goes, it. Hey, you know. Looking good. We're, looks like I got the ride worked out for, and, you know, I'm going to be loading up the trailer and the truck and that, and I'm going to be moving down to you know, South Carolina. Yeah. Because when he worked for Big, or when he drove for Big Daddy. Oh, so he didn't go straight to Charlotte. Big Daddy wasn't in Charlotte. Yeah. Okay. So that's so that, that's kind of why we wanted to talk to you was obviously you knew Alan during the, the, the ASA days and, and racing out here, but... You moved down south with him. Yep. Um, and I uh, actually came down for – I came down uh, – uh, I'm trying to think 85? Yeah, 85. Yeah. yeah. Must have been 85. So I have Alan's Ford Thunderbird packed with all his stuff, and he took the hauler because we took our um, big trailer that we had, yeah. which was a, a gooseneck yeah. 33-foot trailer. Sure. Okay. Just, it wasn't a semi at this point right. in time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he loaded that all up, and he went. But, you know, and you've heard this story already, too, is, is before he was getting ready to leave, truck burned up. Yeah. yeah. That, that story you heard? Yeah. Yeah. So. Did you have to help with any of that? Uh, that was, Alan actually ended up buying a, the match truck to our truck uh -huh. from Jerry Gunnerman. Yep. I don't know. I don't know exactly what the deal that they sure. put together, but yeah, sure. all of a sudden sure. we had Jerry Gunnerman's truck, and that's how Alan were good. left. Right. What go. caused the fire? Like, never figured out. It's electrical something. Yeah. We don't know what they never said. Yeah. They just total end up totaling yeah. the truck, and that was the end of it. Huh. So we we've talked to a handful of people asking like, was it a good move? Because I mean, for for every for every story like Alan's, there's 900 of the guys who thought about doing it or tried to do it didn't work out. I mean, it's a huge risk. Um, we haven't heard anybody who outright said, no, you shouldn't do this. This is a bad idea. But were you the only guy moving down with him? Um, he asked a couple of us crew guys. Yeah. And I was actually the only one that actually ended up going. Right. Did um, anybody talk to you and be like, this is a, this is it, a dumb idea? Trust me. You're it, married, it was right? a, yeah, I was married at the point in time. Yeah. And it, it 
it was like okay, and it pretty much was after the first season. Pretty much it was okay. Am I going to go racing? Stay racing full time? Yeah, right. And am I going to stay married? <laughs> well, let's say, what, how's your wife with this? Because you're, you're my wife at, at the point in time had a really good job with Wisconsin Bell. Okay. So every other race or two, she fly to the race, so she'd hang out with us for the weekend. Or um, a lot of good friends here that always travel to come to the races. She'd jump in. I don't know if you heard Patty Gottwine. Okay. Um, was a real good friend of Allen's, I believe. I, and I, I dated her for a while, I believe, also. And um, But she'd jump in with Charmaine, or my wife Charmaine would jump in with Patty, and they'd drive to a racetrack here and there, too, and, and do that kind of thing. So, so it you know, you can make anything work. It was just I knew that if she wasn't going to give up her job and I, w- I didn't want to give up my job, it was like one of us had to decide what we were going to do. We, I know, I've still not heard, like, that there was a grand plan in place. You did, oh, there was no funding. No, there, there, was, was, there was a grand plan okay. in place. Okay. He had, um, he had run two years of uh, the um, – Bush cars, the sportsman cars. Okay. He he ran off and on five, six, eight, five or six races, in case he ended up in the in that series, so that he'd still be eligible for a rookie. Right. He ran a couple of races at some of the the midsize tracks. He ran a couple of the short tracks, midsize tracks, and then he ran Milwaukee Mile when they were first coming up here. When the Bush Series came through. And uh, yeah, and when they came up here in in that, so he came here and ran that. Um, so I got my feet wet also the same time as he was getting his feet wet. He knew what he wanted to do and where he wanted to end up, and yeah. he was he got some really good rides in the sportsman cars and I think took advantage of what he could get out of them. Yeah. And then uh, we went down, and I know that he that's where he met up with Big Daddy, and yeah. I can't even remember what Big Daddy's name is anymore <laughs> from back there. Um, and that lasted four races that partnership okay um and a lot of it came down to um us not making daytona yeah then the next race we were probably in all the practices i i believe we were probably in the top 10 for qualifying in all the practices yeah and qualifying got rained out and they did it by registration date and uh, he never sent in a registration. He registered wherever the last minimum was, so we didn't get the race in that race. Yeah. And then the next race, same thing happened, another rainout race, and they they lined up by points and registration dates. So we first three races we didn't race. Yeah. Yeah. And you're there to race. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Allen was at that point in time, and that's where. And now this is going to be dumb because I can't remember if we went from 32 to 35 to 35 to 32. And that's where the number change happened that rookie year. Okay. Okay. Because of Ben Allen bought the car, and um, we moved into the shop with Norman Degree. Right. Okay. Degree. Right. Yeah. Degree Engineering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, his name has come up a couple of times. but um, So, yeah, so originally it was supposed to be sort of a – a few race deal where you're sort of partnered in with somebody else who was running it. Like Bill, yeah. Bill Terry's deal, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Bill Terry. Yeah, Bill Terry's deal. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Big, big Daddy. Big, that's what he big went Daddy by. Bill Terry. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So he, he was a big boy. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, so he pretty much, he had his own guys. Right. Yeah. Alan brought me down. Um, it was really bad or hard for me because I was one of them you're, guys, northern boys, that 
Yeah. You know, you work till the work was done, and these guys are 5 o'clock, and it's like punching uh, a clock and uh, leave the race car shop. yeah. yeah. And yeah. hey, I'm still in the shop. And they're, you're not one of their guys. Yeah, you're they're Alan's gone, guys. and I'm yeah. still working on a race car. Uh, Alan so. probably was, too. Yeah. Right? Probably just two of you? Yeah, well, Alan, at that point in time, he was still feelers out. Okay. So, so he was still working deals. And yep. Yeah. 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 Interesting. So yeah. after these handful of races, he realizes, okay, I, this isn't I should be doing my own deal. Yep. Yeah. And that's pretty much where that That's all, how he is. That's where yeah. it came from, and yeah. that's where it started. Yeah. Because then it was like, you know what? registrations now if it doesn't go in and it ain't in on time or it isn't in yeah for something to happen down down the road right now it's on me yeah now you're accountable to it yeah, yeah. you know so yeah. it's and that's kind of where that all started out of that when yeah. he when he takes over the deal from bill terry uh you're still with him the, the yep. legend goes that he had a really hard time finding crew to, and that it would be like well, guys would come in and they would they wouldn't be up to it and he'd get rid of them and that he always looked for guys that had their own race cars. We we never got rid of anybody. They just didn't show ah, up. Ah, okay. <laughs> ah, all right. I don't I don't remember ever any Allen ever walking anybody out. Okay. Okay. Uh, I can remember a lot of guys that were there Monday or Tuesday, and you know when we didn't shut down at five or six o'clock. Yeah. Like, like everybody else did down there. It seemed to be. Yeah. Yeah. They were kind of like. Well, how late are you guys gonna work? Kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. It's like until, until we get it done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Until it's you know. done. So, so there was just a work culture that was instilled by Alan and then you oh, it, that just people weren't ready for. You know, it, it and it was as and this is even prior to you know where you know you worked in the you know you went to the to the gym worked out. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah and then yeah. you went to the shop. Right. And then, right. Well, this is more like two guys. Doing the job trying, of ten, trying to make yeah. a yeah. twelve-man so, roster work. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, um, so you get to the end of that season, and how do you decide, or how do you tell Alan, like, "Hey, dude, I gotta go." Uh, it was hard. Yeah. Um, because it it wasn't just telling Alan that; it was knowing that I got to what I wanted to do. Yeah. And okay, I'm gonna just kind of walk away from what I've talked about my whole entire life of doing. Right. Right. And what do they always say? You know, you do whatever you do for love. Yeah. <laughs> fair. <laughs> and I'm fair. still with her, so. Yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, so, so basically you left because you wanted to be back with your wife who's, who's out of town. And you're, I can't imagine well, you're pleasant to deal with with the hours you're working. And You know, and it's, you know. And this is before yeah. the easeability that we have now of FaceTime and yeah, text and messaging Skype and, and well, being able which, to keep up. Yeah, which probably could change a whole bunch of things. Like I said, is, is I tried to get her to as many races as we could get her to get to. Yeah. And, now and then, Alan would help out on that end. Yeah. Well, you got to remember too is now, I'm in ASA. Probably when I went to work full time for Alan was probably eighty two or eighty three. And now I'm a full time employee, and now I'm getting a paycheck. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Finally getting paid. It's changed. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. What was the kicker? I mean, usually people people start thinking about okay, we're finally in Cup. I'm getting to do kind of live my dream. You're starting to burn out, or or the pressure at home is, quitting. but there's usually a moment that says, "Okay, that's it. I got to get out." Uh, what was that moment for you? It, it was nothing with Alan at all. Mm -hmm. It was all inside turmoil in myself. Okay. Okay. You know, just the conflict I didn't, between I being didn't, a husband and I. I, I guess I didn't want to be those statistic of. I didn't want to be divorced. I didn't okay. want, and I was kind of like, you know, how you known your wife your whole life? 
I'm sorry. Had you had you sort of been around your wife for most of your uh, life? My wife grew up around me with race cars. Okay. Nice. So yeah, all through high school. This was like a lifelong through, partner. Yeah, right. Yeah. My, right. I'm, we met in high school, so. Okay. So this so high school, partner. High awesome. school yeah. sweethearts. That's, so. that's really awesome. So, yeah, no, we've been through a lot of crap. And yeah, <laughs> right. So, yeah, you're loyal. When yeah. you're doing that first season of NASCAR uh, with with Alan, what, what were your job titles like on a race weekend were you doing pit stops were you doing what were you, what were you doing everything yeah um pretty much i i was the crew chief okay per se yeah i mean alan was really the crew chief that's yeah. we've, we've, <laughs> we've heard, heard this we've yeah. heard yeah. yeah you know you have to have somebody that nascar can come talk to so i was a designated right uh, okay right. Know, that was pretty much where that okay. came from okay. yeah. but even the asa things pretty much that ended up being you know how me so yeah right Right, you know, so yeah, everything had that name. Yeah, but I, we all worked together. Right, and like I said, it was like I called them us, the three Musketeers, Donnie and and Jeff and myself. Right, and then uh, we had another Jeff who worked for Bailing Circle Track up here. Okay, okay. Um, uh, um he was our Jackman, big uh, guy. Okay, yeah. And he traveled a lot in the ASA days. Yeah. Um, I know that Alan tried to get him to come with us, and he just wouldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And well, we, uh, uh, before we got going here, when, when we were setting up, you and I were talking uh, about the old Riverside Speedway. And I said, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, you probably wouldn't have gotten as far west as where I live because you would have flown into Ontario. And you laughed at me like, why? What? What? Yeah. Yeah. How do you think the race car gets yeah. there? So. <laughs> It wasn't so much that you were the truck driver; it's that everyone was the truck driver. Yeah, Cause rotation. Because okay. you weren't running like a big rig yet. You guys no. were using a, a yep. dually or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So it's like get in the hall, get in the truck, get in the yeah. truck. We're all going. Yeah. Mm. Wow. At a cup level. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Now well, we we had our talking to's after our about eight nine races in a row with our soon-to-be pretty bad-looking race car (laughs) (laughs) that wasn't living up to cup standard and Uh, then it ended up in norman shop and norman hung a new body on it and got it back to where it needed to be sure okay yeah because you guys had one car we had one car we actually alan made another deal and we got a speedway car Uh um and i can't remember who the guy we got a speedway car from right now in 1986 was obviously not Cup of 2018 in terms of the number of cars, number of crews, that sort of thing. But you guys, even then, were considered underdogs. What what was the size of your team relative to a Richard Childress or a Junior Johnson at the time? Size of our team? Relative to like a Richard Childress or a Junior Johnson in 1986. Most of those guys had probably 10 to 15 people. On one and car? For one car. And we had... Not including Alan, probably three of us. Oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> really small. So you're driving all night to get to, say, Riverside, and then garage is open at 7 and you're ready to go. Yep. So, <laughs> like, a, you know, what's the longest amount of time you were up? Um, I know that fixing a bent race car once, I think we were up, you know, combination probably – 30, 35 hours. Yeah, it was rough. Oh, it was rough. God. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. You know, just. And meanwhile, Alan is particular about appearance and things like that. And uh, Yeah, but at that point in time, it, that didn't matter, didn't matter to him. Yeah, get it done. Get we got to yeah. get it working. We got to get it back together. We got to. Now, who would source all the cocaine? <laughs> 
Uh, Tim Richmond's parties. <laughs> <laughs>So that was John Janik, and uh, that's going to wrap out our very first episode of this Alan Cole Wiki special. Now, remember, at this point in the story, uh, he and John had moved south. They're going NASCAR racing. John has left, but Alan is committed to being a NASCAR star. So uh, that's going to end episode one for us. Uh, but before we move on, we want to remind you of a couple of things. One, our entire trip was actually documented. If you go to the Dinner with Racers YouTube channel, it's also available on dinnerwithracers.com. Uh, you'll see some video highlights of this entire trip. Uh, and above all else, uh, we haven't mentioned this yet, but Alan is up for the NASCAR Hall of Fame. He's one of a few nominees, and uh, we're hoping this might be the year he gets inducted. And you as a fan actually have a chance to make a difference on that by going to nascarhall.com uh, and voting for Alan as uh, your favorite driver to be inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Now, there's also a Twitter hashtag movement that is hashtag AK4HOF, Alan Quickie for Hall of Fame. And you'll hear from the guest in the next episode who's behind that whole movement. So once again, nascarhall.com or nascar.com. You can vote as many times as you want and use hashtag AK4HOF.